Let's begin uh, our time in God's Word again with prayer. Father, uh, you have been so good to bless us with your Word. Uh, things that uh, Paul, Paul taught Timothy are from your very mouth, uh, God-breathed, inspired, and so profitable for us, so, so good for us. Uh, to help us to grow and to function and to be uh, trained up and corrected and even rebuked as we need it. And so we, we come to your word knowing that you have our good in mind and, and that's because it has your glory uh, first and foremost. And I pray as, as we take this in today, your, your Holy Spirit would apply it to each individual heart and life as it needs to be. And as I speak, I know my words are... Uh, only so good as, as far as you direct and as far as you use, and, and I know that you are pleased to use me, and yet in spite of myself, and so I will just lay myself before you as, as your instrument and pray that you would be pleased to use me and that you would be honored in this time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may have noticed you're, you've got something missing in your bulletin this morning. There's, there is no sermon outline. Um, my message just doesn't... <laughs> I know, that's shocking. I hope, hope you can overcome that before we're done. <laughs> but uh, what, I, what I've shared this morning doesn't really fit into outline form so well, so I um, hope you can make a do with that. Uh, but I would like to introduce you to someone. Maybe you know him fairly well this morning through my time. And, uh, but we begin in the, in the city of Ephesus um, about... 85 to 90 A.D., um, and we come across an old man, um, a man, uh, let's just imagine him in his home, uh, seated at a table with a large uh, piece of parchment in front of him. Uh, if you could have seen him in the hours prior to us running into him, you would have seen a lot of people coming and going. This is a man who has a great influence, at least within a certain circle, uh, the church, followers of the Messiah, Jesus. Uh, and so you would have probably seen people coming and going for, uh, for advice, for counsel, for, for teaching uh, people that, that this man was discipling and, and helping them to know their Savior better, helping them to love one another uh, better. He's lived in, in Ephesus for many decades now, and as you may remember from when we've studied Ephesus in the past, Ephesus was a city um, of, of people from all over the world, a city where people came and went through the, the great port, uh, the important harbor that was there, but also uh, roads that went then inland, Ephesus on the uh, uh, far western coast of what was known then as Asia Minor. We, we call it Turkey today. And, and things kind of just spread eastward into those other cities from Ephesus. It was also a city of great, uh, well, I wouldn't say great, but a lot of religion, a lot of idol worship of the, the different uh, uh, Greek and Roman gods. Uh, there was a temple there to the emperor uh, past emperors. It was, it was a city of great sin. Um, temples that, that, that featured temple prostitutes, uh, 
uh, all kinds of, of things in, that really were inspired by demons. And yet here, this man uh, shepherds a church in the midst of it, all, that, all of that, and he's, he's making an impact. He's, his, the impact of him and this church is being felt greatly. In fact, in a few years, they'll actually kick him out of the city. They'll actually kick him out onto an island off the coast of Asia Minor. But in front of him is this scroll. And he's just finishing up this large scroll that's laying in front of him. Obviously, the work probably of many months, maybe years in front of him, and, and he's getting down almost to the end of what's left of this, this parchment. Uh, so with his ink-stained uh, fingers, he's contemplating, how shall, I, how shall I bring this all to a close? And as he contemplates that, as he, he seeks guidance from the Lord, he finally writes, and there are also many other things which Jesus did which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. And so he finishes uh, what you know, was uh, a huge work. And of course, you've probably figured out by now, I'm talking about John, the apostle, uh, finishing up his gospel. Uh, by this time, he is an old man. Uh, probably in his 80s at this point. Uh, how, will he get, how, how was it he was able to get these things right after all these decades since he had been a witness? Well, for one thing, he was guided by the Holy Spirit just as Jesus had prophesied. In, in John 14, verse 26, you may remember he said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance, all that I said to you. And so the ultimate author of this gospel, this, this telling of the good news of Jesus Christ, was the Holy Spirit. But John was, of course, in fact, an eyewitness to the things that he would write. And not only that, but he had spent over 50 years at this point teaching these things to so many different people. He spent all these years being a witness, as he was called to be. You will be my witnesses. Well, now he was getting out on the edge of the uttermost parts of the earth. Still, not quite as far as the gospel would go, certainly, because it reached us, right? But a far distance from where John started. And so my intent, as we move ahead in the months ahead of us, uh, to walk us through this great declaration of Jesus' good news, the Gospel of John. And so I, this morning, I'd like us to get to know this man that God used to record it, to write that down, at least a little bit. Uh, his challenge was far greater to tell us about Jesus, the Messiah. Um, we'll catch a little bit of get to know a little bit this man named John. And he started far from Ephesus. He grew up in Capernaum, uh, which was a, a fishing city by that time, and actually I intended to have a map up there, my apologies, the, the memory stick's still sitting on the side of my computer. And, uh, so at the back of your, your Bible, you can look at a map if you like, but uh, the, the, the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, you will see the city of Capernaum right next to the city of Beth Bethesda, 
Bethsaida, I'm sorry, Bethsaida. And he came from a fishing family. Right there on the Sea of Galilee, the nation of Israel, not in the southern part, and not in Judea, of course, where the, the, the best Jews lived, right? The more religious, well, at least according to their view. But up in Galilee of the Gentiles, uh, it was a, a place, a mix of Gentiles, of Jews. Uh, it was, a, it was a, a fishing place and yet a place uh, where a lot of uh, tax collectors were because you had major roads coming through there from the north and, and then heading, and heading down into to Israel and then on to Egypt. Uh, you had the commerce coming off of the Sea of Galilee, the fish that was caught there and so on. They were part of a, of a successful family business. And he grew up in that with his brother James. As was the practice of those days, he would have started just as a, as a, as a little boy, maybe five or six, working with the family, you know, helping sort the fish, mend the nets, do whatever was necessary in order to carry on this, this business of fishing. Um, we're told in the Gospels that they had hired helpers and that they also worked together with uh, some, some partners. To, uh, so uh, John and his brother James uh, worked with Peter and Andrew, who also had a boat. So as fishermen, I, I can see John as being really a rough, physical kind of guy. Now, if you've seen you know, many of the, the, the paintings you know, that have been painted through the centuries of John, uh, you often see this kind of a weak, emaciated, pale-looking man, you know, just kind of laying there. I don't think that's John. Not, not at all. Um, he, he lived a physical life from his young childhood. He, he wor would have worked hard. And, and before Jesus met him, he spent, you know, his time out pulling in heavy fishing nets. Uh, we're doing the work of, of hauling and sorting and, and all of those things that fishermen did. So this is not, not a soft, wimpy-looking man, but I believe a muscular and strong and rough person who, who lived among a strong, hard-working people. Um, maybe even a little bit rough around the edges because of the people that they spent time with. He was raised in a faithful Jewish family. Uh, in a city that had a, had a synagogue. Uh, in fact, you can go to Capernaum today and you can see the remains or the ruins of the synagogue there in that city. Um, it, was a, it was a city that grew up actually after the return from the exile, so it didn't go way back, as, as some of the cities did clear back even before the exodus. Uh, but it had grown from a fishing village into a, a fairly thriving place. And so they did have a synagogue there. Uh, the, one that, uh, the ruins that you will see don't date back to the time of Jesus, but the foundations underneath probably do. And so that tells you something of the importance of that amongst the Jewish population, even though there was the mixture of the Romans and the other Gentiles in that area. And so from a very young age, he would have been taken to the synagogue and would have been trained in the Old Testament scriptures. Lots of memorization, lots of, of rote uh, learning of important Old Testament scriptures. Uh, but even before that, his parents would have whispered, 
important things from the Old Testament in his ears, would have told him about the one true God of Israel. So he came from a faithful family. Now, he wouldn't have been one who has passed on. A lot of times the young men would all go to Torah school and be trained up until it's time, okay, you probably need to now get out and work all the time with your father in the family business. Okay? But there were some students that stuck out, and they would be then trained further by the rabbis. John wasn't one of those. John was one who went on, and he worked with his father. In fact, later on, uh, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, you see when, when he's making a real stir in Jerusalem after the resurrection and the ascension, they look at him and they look at Peter and they say, they're untrained and uneducated people. How can they be talking like this? How can they know these things? But within John's heart, he had this desire to see the coming one, the Messiah that he'd been told about all his life. Living in a Roman-dominated city, at a crossroads, all the things going on, he longed to see Israel be self-governing, for one thing. He longed to see people turning back to God. So many were following the things of this Roman world that they lived in. He had that in his heart. In fact, we have indication, although in his gospel he doesn't talk about himself by name, but when he heard about John the Baptist, that he was one of those who at first followed John the Baptist because he was talking about get ready, make way. The kingdom of God is at hand. And it was probably through John the Baptist that this John met Jesus the first time. And with his brother James, he followed Jesus really early on in Jesus' ministry. That was a big deal. Because not, not only did he follow Jesus, this rabbi, uh, probably would have also been considered uned uneducated and untrained by the religious leaders of his day. But he, he left behind what he'd been raised to do, what he had done from a little boy, and that was be a fisherman and carry on a successful fishing business. His father Zebedee must have expected him and his brother James to take this and go on into the next generation. They'd done well, and indications in the Gospels later show us that they had connections in Jerusalem, which might tell us how successful their business was. Maybe those were family connections. We don't know for sure. But it turns out that John and James, and we know at least his mother, Peter, and then Peter and Andrew, their partners, were some of the very few from Capernaum who decided, yes, this, this mad Jesus who's, who came and, and kind of made that his headquarters really was, in fact, the Messiah. He really was the one they'd been waiting for. It was one of those places that Jesus, he actually rebuked them. He said, most, we're told most of his, his uh, miracles were done in Capernaum and the surrounding towns, and yet, Almost everybody rejected him. John was one of those few who said, no, I'm going to leave all of this 
And he walked away from a successful fishing business. He walked away from following his father's footsteps. He was actually willing to disappoint his father, if that was the case, to follow this one that he said, this is the Messiah. In fact, there was a key day in his life when all this came together. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5, if you would, uh, verses 1 through 11. Luke 5, uh, 1 through 11. Now just uh, follow along with me, if you would, as, as this uh, key day in his life, his brother James, Peter, and Andrew uh, comes about. It says, Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him, speaking of Jesus, and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let your nets down for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. As I mentioned, that probably wasn't the first time that John had met Jesus likely down in Judea, when he had been following John the Baptist and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. You know, but some things to notice here was that he really was, he was looking for the Messiah. And Jesus had worked miracles. Now they'd, they'd, and they'd been hearing him speak and teach. But here they were working away, doing what they, they knew best. And that night they'd come up empty. You know, they, they knew nighttime was the better time for fishing, right? And yet Jesus went beyond just doing miracles, beyond just teaching, and, and, and entered into one of the key things in their life, and he demonstrated to them that he was, in fact, the one who filled their nets for them. When he told them, go out, throw your nets. Because for a man to say, leave all this, leave all this and follow me, had to understand that what you were doing as a fisherman, that had to do with what God had in your life. But now God has something else. He can still fill your, fill your nets, and he can provide for you wherever he leads. And though we don't, John's words aren't recorded, we do know that Andrew's words, when he first started following Jesus, probably John said the same thing. We have found 
the Messiah. And they left everything and followed Jesus to become fishers of men, to catch men for the sake of the Messiah of God. Now, again, I talked about how, <clears throat> how John, you know, is often, often shown to be kind of, kind of this weak, wimpy person. Part of it's because he writes about love so much. But understand, Jesus didn't think that. Early on, according to, to Mark's gospel, he was given, along with James, this name. He called the two of them sons of thunder. <laughs> I'm sorry, that just doesn't sound like somebody who's, who's wimpy and... and quiet, right? Uh, a lot of his words aren't recorded in the other Gospels, but here's someone when he spoke, it stirred things up. Uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 9 uh, for an example of that. Luke 9, uh, verses 46 through 56. You notice we have to go to the other Gospels sometimes to get witness about John because he's reluctant to, to speak a lot about himself in his Gospel. But Luke 9, 46 through 56 and we get a real taste for why he would have gotten that nickname. It says, An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. And guess who was in there in the middle of that argument? John was. Right? But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. Now, verse 49 starts out, says, John answered. This is one of the few direct quotes of John speaking by himself in the other Gospels. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. You catch this son of thunder? It's like, you're not one of us. Knock it off. Quit that. That's us. But Jesus said to him, verse 50, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. And when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent his messengers ahead of him. And they went and entered a small or a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to force, or I'm sorry, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Did you get that, that feeling for what John was like prior to God really acting and changing him? You know, he, he's jealous for their group when he sees someone else casting out demons in Jesus' name who wasn't one of them, he tries to shut them down. When they're rejected by the Samaritans as they're traveling through, which shouldn't have been too, uh, too surprising because of the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans, he's like, he and James both are like, let's, let's call fire down, burn these people up, destroy them. If they won't, they won't accept us, then too bad for them. Judgment of God, come down. That was, that was John's heart at this point. 
don't know if you noticed, but at that point, it wasn't early in following Jesus. It said it was close to Jesus' ascension, which means it was close to Jesus' crucifixion. John was speaking things like that, even that late in having followed Jesus. That heart of a son of thunder was rooted deep within him. And that's why he earns a rebuke from Jesus. says, you don't know what kind of a spirit you have there to want to destroy. I came, I brought my life in order to rescue people, not to destroy them. Another interesting thing about John is it seems as though his mother also followed Jesus. Not just that she agreed with his teaching, but she followed along with other women after Jesus. She's listed in the descriptions of the different women who followed along and supported him financially. And by comparing those lists, it seems that her name was Salome. And we, we have the, her coming together with her sons, if you can remember the situation where these two ambitious men who were followers of Jesus who argued with the others about who was, who was the greatest among them were trying to get a special place. They said, he's the Messiah. He's going to be the king. We want the number two and number three spots, right? And so they got their mother in on the whole thing to go and ask a favor of Jesus that he would put James and John in those favored positions when he came into his kingdom. And though rebuked after this, no doubt they were part of the group that were bickering over who was to be the greatest, even on the night that Jesus was betrayed. So John, we learn amazing things about his love for Jesus as we'll move forward in this, this gospel. But understand, it's not because John started out all right. John was like us. He was a pretty ordinary guy. Hopefully that doesn't offend you. But we're all sinners, right? We all stand at the foot of the cross the same way. And none of us come based on our own merits, and neither did John. And that was one of the things that really impacted him as he came to realize his great need, not just for a king or, or a leader, but for a savior. And so through Jesus' ministry, those three years that he followed him, he walked along with him, he was trained, he watched and saw what Jesus did, he was discipled into someone who, after Jesus had risen from the dead, he could, he started, all those things started to really, especially then, take root in his life. And he was one of the three, along with his brother James and with Peter, who was taken into certain moments, just the three of them. The three of them were the only ones who, who witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus and when his glory was displayed. and He was there with Elijah and with Moses. He was the only one who was allowed into the house when Jesus raised a young girl from the dead. And he was only one of those three that was given that real close-up look at what Jesus was going through in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he fell asleep during that. And yet he was there and saw some of that great agony that Jesus was going through. And later on, when he writes his, his first epistle, he'll start off by emphasizing that he was an eyewitness and experienced Jesus close up. 
And though he was still trying to understand through all that, these, these things would come together after the resurrection, and you would have this man who, having placed his faith in Christ, was transformed, had the Holy Spirit come to live within him, God was able to use him then in mighty ways. And one of the interesting things about John and his mother is that they were two of the few who actually went and stood at the foot of Jesus' cross. And they were there. It was there that, that Jesus actually entrusted his own mother into John's care. And that probably had a huge impact. Well, probably. It, it would have. And, and he was faithful according to, to tradition and that she always then... He, lived with him. He, he took care of her until her death. Not only that, but he and Peter um, were some of the first of the apostles to get to the tomb. You know, and, and, and John runs up and looks in. Peter comes and charges inside. But one of the things about that passage is it tells us that John, it doesn't mention himself by, it isn't mentioned by name, but it says he believed. Obviously, still a lot of questions left to be asked, right? He's not in the tomb. But in his heart, he re recognized, oh, this is what he had been saying. He had been telling us after three days he would have to rise from the dead. And there's, there's, there's a moment of transformation, I believe, in his life. So that's, that's a little bit about the man and who he was and who he had been really more than anything. But why another gospel? As we back up again to this old man in Ephesus, he, he spent about 20 years, he remained in Jerusalem after Jesus ascended. And, and was one of those people that Paul says was considered a pillar in the church of Jerusalem. And then he, he went from there, we know, to Ephesus. We don't know if there were some things in between, but he spent probably decades in Ephesus ministering in the church there. Jews and Gentiles together for decades. But why another gospel? He would have been familiar with the gospel that Matthew, Mark, and Luke each wrote. They'd been around. They'd been circulating in the church by now. Why another? You're just going to tell the same story again in the same basic format that the, th the other three did. The, those three are called the synoptics. There are a lot of similarities, uh, a lot of the same flow, kind of a synopsis of Jesus' life. But John has a whole other way of approaching this. And that's why the Gospel of John is unique among the four Gospels. It is made up of 93% original material that's not found in the other Gospels. There's some things there that John wanted to say after laboring to take the gospel to the world, laboring to build up the church that would uniquely encourage the church, but also reach out to the people of the world that passed through Ephesus all the time. People from all kinds of countries and backgrounds and everything else were passing through Ephesus. John wanted to write a gospel for the world. It contains more of Jesus' teaching than the other Gospels. And so much material from that last night where Jesus was getting, he was going to be betrayed that night, 
And he was preparing his disciples for what was to come and for their future ministry as his apostles, as those who would be sent out from him. And he spent hours teaching them, training them, preparing them. And only because John wrote another gospel do we have a record of those words and those things that he taught. And he wrote it with a particular purpose. Turn with me to the, toward the end of John. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. As he, he nears the end, he's got a statement similar to the last sentence that I read earlier of the gospel. But as he's, he's starting to, to wrap up, he says, There were... Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, and here's his purpose statement, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's why another gospel so this is an approach that's going to hit the people of the world, many different backgrounds. And I want them to know that he was the promised one, yes, of Israel, the Messiah, but he is also the Son of God, therefore he is God. And he is the only one who can bring life to those who would believe in him. So there's his purpose, his drive was the same thing that Jesus wanted, right? Remember, Jesus said, from now on, you'll be catching men. He hadn't stopped that. That was still his purpose. And so he writes this gospel that was very personal in many ways. One of the things you'll notice as we work our way through the gospel of John is there's, there's lots of uh, what are called asides. In other words, he'll be going along and, and telling the story or the account of what Jesus did or said, and, th and then it's kind of like he turns and talks to you. He says, oh, well, this happened in such and such a place. Or this happened because, or it'll, it'll give you insight into the hearts of the people. Because they ha still hadn't believed or they still hadn't understood. And so he takes us with a personal view and he says, come along with me. And when there's things that you might not understand, he gives you a little explanation to the side. Not only that, he uses a, a re really a pretty simple vocabulary. Now, that might be because he didn't have advanced education, as most people would consider it. But I think part of that also might be that he just wants to make sure that everyone can understand the things that he has to say. He doesn't want to shoot this over the top of the heads of anyone. He wants everybody to be able to take this and grasp it, understand it, translate it into their language. And so, you know, when you study John's writings, a lot of times you're not finding all these unique words that you've never heard before in the Greek. Uh, but he uses a lot of very simple words and then infuses them with meaning that comes from Jesus. And not only that, he's, he's one of these people who is very clear-cut in the things he says. A lot of things that he says are very black and white. He's, he doesn't deal a lot with the exceptions. Paul does that a whole lot more. But John talks about things that are black and white. He, he boils it down uh, scholars look at it and, and uh, at this gospel and say there's basically seven key miracles. So there's many, many more that could be written, but I've, I've chosen these out 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. There's also seven I am statements and a whole lot of other statements where he explains himself. I am, usually talking about how he has been sent by God. He says, I am, and how, he, how he's, he is obeying his Father, how he is doing what his Father wants him to do. But he's got, Jesus, a lot of times, explained himself and who he was, but, but particularly these key seven statements where Jesus said, I am, and then defined himself in a particular way. He said, I am the bread of life. In chapter 6, verse 35, I am the light of the world. In chapter 8, verse 12, I am the gate for the sheep in chapter 10. And also in chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life in chapter 11, verse 25. And I am the way, the truth, and the life in chapter 14. And I am the true vine in chapter 15. John's concerned that we know this one who came and how he defined himself. Oh, the world would define him in all kinds of ways and still is, right? Many ways that are totally wrong. But John wanted us to, to understand how did Jesus define himself? Who did Jesus say that he was? And one of his key concepts that he, he, he hits on throughout this book is that Jesus is God. Not just a good teacher, not just a Messiah, a sent one, but in fact, God the Son. Right from the very beginning verses that Lord willing we'll look at next week. He talks about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the Word, the Word for, for Jesus, he's talking about Jesus when he says the Word was God. And from there, right there, in the beginning of the, of the book, he hits with us heavily, this man was not just a man, but he is God. In chapter 8, verse 58, he quotes Jesus' words, Before Abraham was, I am. In essence, using the Old Testament name Yahweh for himself. But also speaking of the fact that he existed from eternity past. Or John chapter 17, verse 5, as he is praying before he goes to the cross, and he says to the Father, the glory I had with you before the world was. Restore that to me. I was glorified with you before you created anything. And of course, key concept that we hear often with, with the, the Gospel of John is belief. Of course, he recorded those words of Jesus that are so well known, right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in, believes in him, believes in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life, right? Eighty-three times in the gospel, according, well, in the New American Standard, it varies somewhat in other words used besides believe, but 83 times that word comes up specifically as believe in the New American Standard. That's part of his purpose, right? So, so believing entrusting yourself to him, saying yeah, he is not just a man, but he is God. He is the Savior. He is the one through whom you can have eternal life. Again and again, 
He brings up the concept of light and darkness over and over. From the early verses, he said, in him was light. Later, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Very clearly, he's come into darkness, a place where truth is hidden, where God's glory is hidden. And he comes in and he brings himself and light explodes. What will you do with that light? Again, a stark contrast, right? It's either light or darkness. And of course, John is known as the apostle of love. Again and again, he talks about the love of God for mankind. He tells us what Jesus had to say about what love truly is. He'd been a harsh young man when he first came to Jesus. But the strong love of Jesus had shown the importance of love. Yeah, important to be passionate about the truth, and I think John was before. But he learned from his Savior that the truth without love, that's not, that's not what God is about. It's truth then demonstrated through love. And the Son of Thunder came to be known as the Apostle of Love. Uh, John MacArthur, in his commentary, tells us that Jerome says in his commentary on Galatians that the aged apostle John was so frail in his final days at Ephesus that he had to be carried into the church. One phrase was constantly on his lips, my little children, love one another. Ask why he always said that, he replied, it's the Lord's command. And if this alone be done, it is enough. And I think that's one of the reasons why another key concept is life. We've, very early verses, in him was life. So Jesus' words about life and, and even being life himself are all throughout John's gospel. You find that word come up again and again. Because John had found something worth spending, really someone worth spending his life on rather than himself. He stopped asking who is the greatest because he had come to know the one who is the greatest and the one who actually gave him life so that he could also lay down his own life empowered by him. And that's why another key word is abiding. Especially chapter 15 may be a favorite of yours. I know it is of mine where Jesus says, I am the true vine and you must abide in me. Draw your life from me. Be connected to me, or you can do nothing. You have to dwell. I have to be the place where you live. That was his point. Where you live determines who you are in that perspective. So where do you live? Where is your heart invested? Where do you love? To, with who do you love? Do you love to spend your time? John emphasizes through this gospel, it has to be with Jesus, or you don't have life. It's only from him that life comes. And so, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's how he, call, that's how he refers to himself throughout his gospel. He never says, I did this or I did that. He writes this gospel. 
he, he wasn't worried about who was the greatest. He just said, Jesus could love even me. And so I want you to know this Jesus, who is God, who is the Messiah, who is the Savior. So as an old man who'd surrendered everything to Jesus and followed him, it was still the most amazing thing he could think of as he wrote this gospel in those, those later years, is that Jesus loves Let me introduce you to him. That's what we have to look forward to in the Gospel of John. Appreciate your prayers as we move forward. There's so much there. And I'll be praying for you, too, that as as we move through John's words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that they would have the kind of impact on you that Jesus had on John. Let's pray. Father, we are so blessed to have your word, and, and we think particularly of this, this gospel that John wrote, this good news that John wrote, inspired by your spirit, and, and it's been used so powerfully in so many lives, often uh, people who are seeking to know Jesus are told first, read the gospel of John. People who don't know anything about the Bible are told, read the gospel of John. Oh Lord, there's so much there that we need to to learn, even if we've been through it many, many times. There's so much to know about Jesus that you want for us. Help us to have hearts eager to learn, not to be uh, content with what we already know or think that we already understand this gospel fully. And that you would do great work through us by your word, uh, touching us in ways we haven't been touched before, changing our thinking to conform it to your thinking, and that you would bless uh, this study as we move forward. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the, the focus of it all, in his name.